frazzled friends and happy 2018 to all of you. So exciting, so many possibilities, a new year, a fresh start. I just wanted to say I'm busting with energy and so excited that you are here with me in Le Vital Core Salon. And welcome to those of you who are new. I'm Kara, your host, your asker of questions, your salonaire, if you will. And I'm here to introduce you to women who are out in the world making an impact on the world around them and not letting bullshit or burnout slow them down. I know most of you listening hear me talking to women about self-care and what helps them get everything that they want to do and make the impact that they want to make in the world in terms of this podcast, but behind the scenes, I'm also working with women one-on-one to help them get their shit together. And what I mean by that is helping them look at their foundational health habits, things like diet and rest and exercise and stress management and social relationships and how those are impacting their personal and professional goals to make sure that everything is seamlessly moving forward so that you can avoid burnout and also be getting closer to a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. So if that resonates with you in any way, there are two things that you can do. One is you can sign up for the newsletter because twice a month I'm sending out some health and lifestyle tips, sharing some progress about the 33K task list project, and making you aware of when future podcasts are rolling out so that you don't have to worry about when is it, what's happening, it's just going to come to your inbox. And secondly... I also want to offer you a chance to hop on the phone to see how we can make 2018 a better year for you. And if you're interested in that, head over to levitalcoresalon.com and click on contact to drop me a note that will avoid my spam filters and actually find its way to me. I really hope to hear from you. This year could be so different. You have options. And options are something my guest... Teresa Garrett and I talk about today. And you're going to hear some of the choices that she's made in life and how she does it all. But I want to give you a little bit of background about her. So Teresa earned her BS in biochemistry from Florida State University and then went on to get her PhD in biochemistry from Duke University. So she is a pretty smart lady. Following graduation, She took a five-year hiatus from full-time research to stay at home with her two daughters. And during that time, she was still an adjunct professor through Duke University's School of Nursing in the summer. And finally made her way to Vassar College in 2007. And in 2013, she was promoted to the Associate Professor of Chemistry. I'm not going to lie, Teresa's creds intimidated me a little bit. Chemistry was one of those subjects that I just had to work so hard to do pretty mediocre at. It was never something that came easy or natural to me. And for those of you listening who hear what Teresa does and thinks, oh my god, I need to stop listening right now because they're going to talk about chemistry, please stick with us. She makes it really accessible, and we just get a little bit of context about the type of work she's doing and the area of research she's in 
but there's so much to learn from Teresa, the woman, the teacher, and, and more importantly, the human being and how she juggles the different spheres of her life as a, as a wife and as a mom and as a working mom and as a triathlete. There is so much inspiration to be had from this show and things to learn or things to consider from this conversation. So please stick around. Don't be freaked out like I was thinking we were going to go mega deep in terms of chemistry. I want to give a big shout out to Sarah Jacob, who I introduce you to in episode 27. If you haven't checked that episode out yet, I highly recommend you go back and give it a listen. And I want to thank Chris Garrett. Through Sarah, I met Teresa's husband, Chris, and that's how this podcast and all of the conversation leading up to it came to be. And I also want to thank the Hudson Valley Tech Meetup because it's there that I've been able to meet great people like Sarah, like Chris, and so many others and start to integrate and really feel like I live in the Catskills or in the Hudson Valley and I'm starting to meet people and be connected and good things are coming out of it like this conversation with Teresa Garrett. So I'll spare you any more babbling from me And voila, here's the interview. Hey, Teresa, welcome to La Vital Course Salon. How are you today? Great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here. I know you've you've been, what, up to your waist in pretty much grant writing, right? Yeah, it was more like eyeballs, but... um... (laughs) It's done. It got submitted on Friday. So cross fingers and toes. Fingers crossed. Maybe we can start with what your field of expertise is and what the work you're doing is. So in terms of the research that I do, the scholarship that I engage in here at Vassar, I'm a biochemist by training and I study lipids, which are fat, uh, fat molecules that are found in bacteria. And I'm interested in the bacteria that's really, really common um, in our world and in our bodies called E. coli. Mm -hmm. We study a class of lipids that are found in E. coli and we want to understand how they're made and what they're doing there. What's their role? Why Why are the cells making them? What cellular processes are... Um, impacted by their presence or their absence or if we change their composition at all. And yeah, so that's what we do. And I do that work with a team of undergraduate researchers and the help of a full-time research associate. Very cool. Also very over my head. Chemistry has never been my my field of expertise whatsoever. I I, I still think of struggling my way through Ray Lehner's chemistry class in high school. Um, I, th- I think as an adult, I've gone down the, the well enough where it intersects with the work that I'm doing. So I kind of have a better foundation. But even hearing about your work kind of scares me. <laughs> it's so detailed. <laughs> yeah, I think it's uh, one of the things in the chemistry textbooks that we teach students, you know, teach uh, 
intro level chemistry courses, there's one of them that says chemistry, the central science. And uh, that's always sort of strikes me as funny when, when I think about it, um, that there's chemists out there who think that their field is the central one. Um, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so Teresa, I'm always fascinated what you're studying is such a niche topic, right? Like this is one type of bacteria that you have an incredibly specialized knowledge of. How did you come to be doing this work? When the process of doing work as a graduate student, you become associated with a, uh, a faculty mentor who becomes your PhD advisor. And so when I was at Duke starting graduate school, uh, we won't talk about how long ago it was. It was a while. <laughs> I did what they call rotations in three research labs. So with three different faculty members who had research programs at Duke to uh, figure out which one I wanted to do my, you know, four year long PhD thesis research with. And through the process of doing that, I came to know this really great, wonderful man, his name was Chris Rates, who studied lipids. And uh, he was the right person for me to work with. Um, so I feel like I came into the field of lipid biochemistry because of him, not because of lipids. And so when people ask me, well, why do you study lipids? I say, because I do. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what I'm trained to do. And that's sort of the field in which I sort of exercise my scientific curiosity and my intellectual chops. It's lipids because of Chris Rates, um, because he was the, the bright person to be my mentor and to do my research training with. Uh, so nothing, not like a, you know, desire since I was nine years old to understand the structure function of lipids in bacteria, but because that's what I'm trained to do and, um, I found a part of it that I feel like I can make a contribution to and that I do make a contribution to, uh, in particular by training students, but also by publishing and, um, going to conferences. So that's, yeah, that's why I study what I study. So it's a little bit of fate here. Like you were kind of going along and you're learning the basic skill set that you need for biochemistry at large and then kind of as you went along you bumped into this mentor mm -hmm. and that has opened up this whole pathway for you right and you know so you know I use this as an example a lot with students because sometimes they see only one path I want to do I want to study this specific thing super hyper specific thing and I'm just like, well, why, why not open yourself up to see what like life is going to deliver you because that may not be available and then you're just going to be frustrated or the, the path to studying that and maybe the people that you're would have to work with would be frustrating and not right for you. And so, you know, let's be a little bit more open. And I think that he was the right person. He and I were, were very, um, compatible intellectually a kind of curiosity that I had when I was a graduate student and the like uh, rapid fire questions on all 
cylinders. He, he he took that and loved it and nurtured it and turned it into, you know, a positive thing. Whereas some of the people that I interacted with, they did not like that at all about me. <laughs> <laughs> so he was the right person for me to work with. And, and then because I was being intellectually nurtured and supported, you know, I came to love and appreciate the things that needed to be learned about lipid biochemistry. Yeah. So I feel like if I had sat down and tried to decide in graduate school, I want to study this field, it wouldn't have been the right thing. Did you have things like that, that felt like when you were going through the undergrad ranks that I think I'm going to end up doing this thing? Or were you really, truly just a curious, open slate? Oh, no, I was way more a control freak. (laughs) Planner. We are kindred (laughs) souls. (laughs) Uh, No, if you had asked me when I was an undergraduate, what, probably like a junior getting, you know, applying to grad school, I'm going to get my PhD and then I'm going to do a high-powered postdoctoral fellowship. And I even knew what I was going to study there. I was going to study crystallography, which is a field for understanding um, molecular structure. And then I'm going to have my own lab, and I'm going to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry. And I'm going to show all those men that, you know, women are super amazing and can kick ass just as much as they can. So I was, like, driven towards that path um, when I was an undergrad. Though it didn't have this, the structures of like the individual topics like lipids or, or this field or that field. It was general, but laser focused on that Nobel Prize. <laughs> um, right, so <laughs> that's where I was as an undergrad. And then graduate school came along and I, you know, I have this great lab that I'm working in with great people. I also got married after my first year of graduate school. And it came time to sort of think about, or we just started thinking about life outside of the work. And I can really remember standing in front of the balance. I was weighing out chemicals on this scale and just thinking that if my family was my top priority, you know, why was I letting work dictate that timeline? Because one of the issues for women who work through, you know, the academy, the way it's set up, especially in the sciences, is you go to graduate school, and then you get a postdoc, and then you get your faculty position, and then you need to get tenure. And then you can think about having a life, children, whatever, right? But there's no, there's no logical place where you know, having children is like, oh, that's this time or, or getting married or any of that sort of stuff. I needed to not let my life be dictated by my career. And my husband had, he was in in graduate school at Duke with me when we started, but he, he stopped um, graduate school and got a job as a computer programmer. So we had a real job. We had real health insurance. I didn't have to go to student health um, which felt like I didn't want to have a baby <laughs> through student. <laughs> I, I imagine it's not the most comprehensive maternity care program. <laughs> I, I have no idea because I did not even look. I was like, <laughs> as soon as I had like real health insurance, I 
asked around, like, where did you have your babies? And was with a real doctor. <laughs> I mean, not, not real doctors at student health, but like a uh, practice that catered to, you know, real life, more fully formed adults than graduate students. And yeah, so as soon at that time at the bench, standing there thinking that if your family's more important than your work, then act like it. I, I think three months later, I was pregnant with my first daughter. Wow. Teresa, you are type A. You get down to business. Like, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen. I tend not to have, like, analysis paralysis. Like, just decide and do. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm blown away that, like, even just the metaphor, like, you're in a lab weighing things. And, I mean, I'm picturing an old-timey scale, and it probably doesn't look anything like that in your world. It looks more like a digital scale that you would weigh, like, food on. Like, I don't oh, think you've seen okay. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think led to that moment? I mean, like, literally just getting to that point where you are having this complete aha moment in the lab. When you're in that environment, you're looking around at the people who are there who are in various states of contentment and happiness, being a little critical of that, right? Like, there, there honestly wasn't a lot of women role models that I could look to to say, oh, that's who I want to be when I grow up. A lot of them were the role model of that's who I don't want to be when I grow up. I don't want to be like that professor who had their children when they were really late. And then I, you know, I even know that they have problems with their relationship with their children because that was the kind of place it was that stuff was known or were just super stressed about all this stuff. I just felt like I can't go wrong if I live to the things that I value and the things that I prioritize. Like, how can that be wrong? If I make my decisions based on the things that I value and make the things that I hold at a higher priority actually at a higher priority, then I don't think that I can go wrong with this decision. And that way of thinking has served me really quite well, that I live to my values to the best that I can. Not always 100%, but you know, living to the things that I care about. If I say that my family is more important than my job, then then people should be able to realize that by looking at me and and knowing me and not just this thing that I say, but it's actually a thing that I do and live. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is it was really important to you to have your actions be congruent with your belief system. And for you, family was at the top of that belief system. And since there was no logical, like, clear, right way to do this, like, the work was just going to have to figure it out, right? Like, it it was either going to work or it wasn't. But I wasn't going to not have a family and not have a a certain kind of life because, because this job was constructed in such a way that there's no easy way to do that. I just was going to be like, you know, either work or it won't, but I'm not going to I'm going to let the job and the career fill in around the things that, that around my family and around that rather than my family filling in around my job. Got it. Which neither are bad. It's just, it's making that a conscious choice. And it sounds like for you, it was like, okay, I've been making this choice all along and now it's time to make another choice and kind of have that, the thing in the foreground and the negative space swap roles. Yes, Right. And for me, like, I think that's 
kind of central to how I'm, I'm trying to see my life is like choice, right? I get to choose. Yeah, it's, it's a series of choices every day. I recognize that not all women or, or people have the kind of choice that I have, but like I have that privilege of having choice. And so like I exercise it and I see my life as, as choices, you know, choose to be happy sometimes, you know, that's a choice, right? Or choose to live in the like house of pain. That's a choice. <laughs> yes. So Teresa, I have a couple follow-up questions for you because I'm, I'm so fascinated by your experience. So I know you mentioned earlier that you are someone that does not really find herself in analysis paralysis. That is something that members of this audience listening may have struggled with or may be currently struggling with in some aspect of their life. Do you think that's just a natural tendency to you? Or if like you think about your thought process, is there any advice that you can offer to those women? So I think part of it's just that natural, like, I don't know, just doer. Like I'd rather be doing than not. So I think that's somewhat more like inherent to who I am as somebody to just like be doing, to be moving and going and, also, I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to be like, oh, that was wrong. We need to back up and try again. And so I think it's a combination of of that sort of inherentness and also just that real sort of faith that everything's going to be okay no matter what I decide, so long as I'm doing it in that context of like good things that are worth valuing. So I'm, I'm, if I'm making my decision based on like the things that I value and care about and, and that I stand in as like, you know, truth and honesty and, and love and generosity and extension of good faith, then I don't know how like any decision that I make could be that far off the mark. It makes me willing to like, just go ahead and step out in terms of one way that, um, my husband uh, is sometimes into determining, you know, finding these like cool ways to hack his life. <laughs> uh, you know, this is the this is the super key to productivity or or whatever, and that's fine and that's great. And, and he shares that stuff with me, and we argue about the extent to which I do or do not do those things sometimes. Um, <laughs> We have those very similar conversations in the Snyder household. <laughs> I don't do inbox zero correctly or whatever. <laughs> um, but one of the things that he's sort of talked about is, and, and I appreciate is this idea of force ranking. Talk to me about what that is. So it's, it means like if you have a bunch of things that let's just go with like a to-do list, you have a bunch of things to do. Only one of those things can be the first thing that you do, not three. <laughs> so you get to decide, like, this is the most important thing that has to get done. And then this is the second most important. And this is the third and the fourth and the fifth. No ties. So it helps to clarify sort of where you should be placing your time, um, what you really care about, what's the most important thing. It's hard. If you have a yeah. lot of things, 
hear about to force rank, the thing that it lets me do is it lets me realize those things that I'm okay sucking at because they're really not at the top of the list. Whatever's fourth, fifth, or sixth is not going to get the same amount of time and effort and energy and uh, and of me that I give to the thing that's one and two. And that's okay. I've said that it's not as important. And now I'm liberated to just kind of suck at it. I love that freedom and permission you give yourself. Like, okay, number one has been determined. So have two and three. And the rest? Choose to suck. You should see students. They look at me like I have 10 heads because they have been functioning in their lives as, you know, achieve, 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 achieve. Everything has to be perfect. I could never do anything not perfect. And eventually, almost all of them (laughs) hit the point where they have too much stuff, not enough hours in the day. Not enough energy. (laughs) Not enough energy. Like the reality is, is you are not going to do all of this 100%. Can we just start with that? What's the most important? What's the second? And then the rest, you're going to just choose to suck at it. And they have a hard time with that. And it is hard, right? It's hard to like do half-assed work when you're a high-achieving, goal-oriented person. To, it's to, like, kryptonite. Act. It's like kryptonite <laughs> some days. <laughs> right. But it's liberating. You're like, here's my sucky thing. Here it is. And you you can be more okay with delivering that because choice was a central part of it. Here's a question then. In terms of force ranking, there is a certain, I'm just going to call it an algorithm because I don't know what the better term is, set of questions, guidelines, filter, whatever we want to call it. But in order to be able to force rank something like you're describing, how do you help your students figure out what it is they need to to look at that against, right? Like, I didn't know there was a name for it, but I guess I've been force ranking for years. For me, it's in terms of spheres. So, like, I have my to-do list sort of segmented by Kara at home and the 33k task list project, the podcast, my consulting work with clients. So I have like these different spheres and I always try to make sure at the end of a day or maybe every other day, you know, depending on what I had been working on, that like each thing, each sphere of my life has a number one priority so that when it's time to pick up that sphere again, I'm not fumbling around for what's the most important thing. Like it's already been decided. How do you help them figure that out or what works for you? So for, for students, especially with coursework, it's, it can be just as, it's not that hard of a calculus, I don't think. Which assignment has the highest percentage of your grade associated with it? Which class do you care about the most? Um, is in your major field or... Sometimes it can be which one do you think you'll be most successful at if you put in the effort. Um, so it's, I feel like it's it's a little more straightforward when it comes to student work. It's also really hard for them sometimes to realize that they may have to deprioritize their extracurricular activities in order to achieve their grade. <laughs> which um, must go over like gangbusters to a bunch of undergrads. I, 
I said to one student one semester who he told me this very lofty goal of getting into um, this. Uh, we have a, a program with Dartmouth to do a five-year engineering degree. And he wanted to get into that program. And he was smart enough to get the grades, but he just didn't apply himself. And I said to him, I said, you know, if you get it done this semester, you have a chance. And we talked about other stuff that he had on his plate and he had all these other extracurricular activities. And I'm like, you need to dump all of them. I can't <laughs> like knowing this students like work habits and, and distractibility level. Like you need to dump all of this. And he's like, I can't, I said, no, you can. And to not ditch most of those things is to choose not to get into this program because you will not be able to get the grades. And, you know, it was hard for him to hear. And he didn't listen to me, <laughs> but he came back the next year and said, you were right. Like, I should have done that. Um, I didn't realize. So, you know, this idea that they have all these things they have to do and they don't have any agency to, to get out of commitments that they've made, you know, it, it hamstrings them from being able to, like, achieve the things that they care about more. Um, so even when I'm helping them do the force ranking, like deliberately, um, you know, they have to be the ones to execute it. Yes. I mean, you're talking to someone who helps people unwind all of their foundational health habits and how they're tangled up with their, their personal and professional goals. I see this all the time, you know, like, Kara, just tell me what to do. And it's like, oh, no, 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 you are in the driver's seat. This is like driver's ed. I'm in the passenger seat. I get the brake and I have a clipboard and I'm watching things. But you have to drive the car. You get to make all yeah. the decisions where to turn, where to put your blinker on or where not to. I think that um, this also applies you know, to faculty and, and to my life in, in that to achieve the things that faculty want to achieve, which is, you know, get promoted to, you know, being tenured or to full professor, you have to be able to, you know, be a productive scholar. So publish papers, get grants, um, things like that. But the construction of our jobs is such that the accountability for that is really far down the line. Whereas every day we're accountable for our class that we're going to teach or that committee that you have to go to and things like that. So it's those days when you have to force rank writing or getting into the lab or reading some of the scholarly work that's out there. Those are the harder kind of decisions to make when you have a stack of papers to grade or students that are knocking on your door or, you know, somebody's asking you to be on another committee or, you know, do this work for a committee or whatever. So I think in the ideal situation, I am not having to utilize force rank if I don't become overcommitted. So if I have just the right, uh, yes. right amount of stuff to do, I don't have to do that. I don't have to like choose to suck because I have the right amount of stuff that I can sort of put my best efforts forward to without going nuts. And so I'm careful about that and recognize that a lot of like stress that people feel is just because they're overcommitted and they're afraid to back out of things that they've committed to. 
So I'm careful about what I commit to. I'm very thoughtful about that. This is an important conversation and it's something, it's funny, I've been asked to speak more and more. I've been doing a talk on how to say no and then in parentheses without feeling like a jerk. (laughs) Because there's always when we say no, we think we're going to close the door on the relationship. And there are ways that we can say no without letting people down or ruining the relationship and getting us cast from the tribe or tossed out of the cave or, you know, having Maslow's hierarchy of needs go out the window. And I think with faculty, especially junior faculty who are on the, on the road headed towards getting tenure, they feel this need to say yes to everything that if they say no to their department or to the Dean or to whoever, that they're going to be somehow judged and not get tenure and like their whole, everything in their life that they've worked for is for naught. And that's a hard thing to kind of work out of somebody that you can say no and you should, when you have enough to do, you have enough to do. That's where you could say, um, I would love to help you with this and I just need your help first to decide what of these other things that are on my plate I'm not going to do so I can help you. And that's that's the kind of conversation I encourage junior faculty who are dealing with the demands of the you know being at a place like Vassar and juggling all of that stuff. How do you build your sort of busy little faculty member life in such a way that it's not annihilating? And it's not at the cost of your family or your friends or your health or your sanity. Yeah, your sanity. Exactly. And um, I had this really funny experience sort of mid was maybe here like three years and I got tenure after my sixth year. So it's like I was pre tenure and I was asked by the dean of the faculty to come to a dinner at his house with other women faculty members of all ranks to talk about sort of work-life balance because he knew that I had taken time off and, you know, so that sort of less traditional career path. And while I was there, I, you know, I sat on the couch and as I want to do said the things that I really think (laughs) (laughs) Uh uh-oh I'm guilty of that sometimes too and (laughs) things I said was that um I sometimes go to class not as prepared because I really know the importance of coming home from work and sitting down with my husband and having a glass of wine and spending time with him he's a quality time kind of guy and if I don't do that things go off the rails and that I that means I don't get to prepare my lecture as well as I might, or those papers didn't get created. And that like, I'm prioritizing my family over work in those regards. And so, you know, that's the truth of my life. And I said it. Um, and the next day I'm walking around the college center and a, a senior faculty member who was there says, I can't believe what you said last night. And I'm like, Oh my God. What did I say? <laughs> I'm surprised there weren't audible gasps in the room. I, you know, he was sitting there and he didn't like go, you're fired. So, I mean, anyway. Um, so I, I was like, what did I say? And she said, well, you said that you, um, you know, sometimes don't prepare and you don't do grading because of work, of your family. And I'm like, yeah. She's like, I can't believe you said that in front of the dean. And I'm just like, 
okay. <laughs> it's such like, an oh shit moment. <laughs> right. Like I had this moment of fear of, did I, did I just like kill my chances at tenure? Like, oh, now we know she's the one who's not committed. And then I thought, you know what? If I did, I did, right? Like, I mean, if the price to pay to get tenure is all of that, like, I can't spend time with my husband. I, I have to, like, be super committed and working, like, crazy and letting everything else fall to the wayside. Then I don't want it. Uh, I'm not willing to pay that price. And it just was this interesting moment of, <laughs> of like, how my approach to the world and my work was different um, than than hers but also you know, sort of I recognize that it was also born of like a, experiencing a, a different kind of environment maybe one where I felt more supported in in those decisions to support you know to prioritize my family or I just was naive of thinking that I could do that and be successful the interesting part from the outside listening in is you know it's so common you know, in your world, it's like, have I killed my all my chances at, at making tenure? For me, back in the day when I was in finance, because that's where I got my start in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy, um, you know, there was always that, like, everyone was fighting for the good project because that would be the project that you might get a spot bonus or that would be the project that would get you the the promotion to the next level. Or this would be the project that would unlock, you know, the mysteries of the universe for you in some way, you know, or however it was sort of sold to us at the time. From the outside looking in, though, it's interesting in your case, because you being honest and, and saying what's on your mind and how you're like actually handling the work and being really realistic and open about it. I would imagine it wasn't killing your your shot at tenure. It was like, modeling like she is going to really give us an honest opinion when we ask and I can't picture that being a negative when you are thinking of bringing someone onto your your team your faculty team right like it's so important yeah so maybe not so much at Vassar but at, at other institutions that I've been at this idea of you know you're just not she's just not committed and I, I would that would make my blood boil when I heard it because it would almost inevitably be coming out of the mouth of men. It just would make me so angry, this, this, like, this metric of commitment. Like, what is, what is that? And why does it matter? If I get the stuff done and I'm producing data and it's getting published and I'm getting grants, like, why does your perception of how or how not committed I am to this matter one iota <laughs> it just would make me so like you know i'm sure you've experienced this where you somebody says something to you and have like a physiological response yes to their like shaking trembling heart racing <laughs> when people start talking like that about um being in the academy i i kind of lose my shit and I don't know if that's so one of the things with the you know the academy is this thing of tenure, right? It's a one-shot deal, right? You go up for tenure, you either get it or you don't. If you don't get it, 
you're done. You're out, you go to another institution, and maybe you get a chance to try again, maybe not. Um, and so everything laser-focused to that point is about ensuring that when that time comes for that judgment to be made, that you are deemed worthy. So to stand and say, like, I'm willing to risk that to have a more balanced life, to have a life that more, lives more to, like, the things that I value – I guess was seen as being just like completely nutter butters <laughs> <laughs> because what's on the line is that all this thing that you've been working for since the time you graduated from college, you go to graduate school, you do your postdoc, you then move into your faculty position. It's all about getting to that point of being a tenured faculty member. You know, my answer was always, yes, I would risk that. But yeah, so I get very agitated when the the bar is set to some level that's like, it can't even be quantified. Like how do you quantify commitment and, or it's it's this other thing that happens is this perception that the bar is just ever being raised higher and higher and higher and higher. And I was at a conference where they started talking about putting your tenure packet together only when you're sure that it's going to knock it out of the park or that it's perfect. And I had to get up and leave. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm going to explode if I stay here. And if you stay here, I'm going to say something that is not going to be nice and is not going to be good for my career. And I just can't fight this battle in this space with these people right now. Like, when they're talking like that, I get a little nutty. Because it's just, it's, first of all, it's not sustainable. Second of all, it's not true. And third of all, I have a big problem with success requiring like uh, surviving a gauntlet, right? You have to survive this like super hard thing and, and there's narrative around, well, we'll support you and provide you with all the support and mentors and, and extra things to help you to survive this process that's just inherently bad. It's so pervasive in the work culture in the United States period, right? Like I'm hearing it in your world. I've had clients who are doctors and you hear about the process they go through in med school and the hours that they're working when they're treating you. And it's a wonder more people aren't dead because if I was functioning on four to six hours of sleep at best on a regular basis and flooding my body with cortisol the rest of the time, I would be making decisions no better than a drunk. (laughs) And then, you know, you look at, I mean, I grew up in a house with a a father that was a police officer, like just more, better, stronger, faster, do more. And even in my own career, like I'm, I'm listening to you talk about life in the academy and in, in my initial career outside of school, it was everything, at least, you know, for me, junior high and high school, everything was devoted to the college application from there everything was devoted to getting a job at one of the prestigious firms. Okay, done. Check that box. Got the internship. Went to work there. Then from that point, it was passing the CPA exam and getting the partner to sign off because we have to work for, at least in Massachusetts, it was, I think, two years back then. You had to work. And at the end of two years, find a partner that you that knew your work or at least knew your name and felt comfortable signing your letter so that you could become a CPA. 
you know, so there was this indentured servitude until you got that letter out of the firm. And then from that point, everything there just then became laser focused on being a partner. You know, if that was your, if that was your track, um, much like you were describing earlier, I learned a lot about the kind of worker and the kind of work I wanted to do, not by positive role models, but by, well, I, I see that path and I definitely don't want that. You know, I, I think at one point I had a, a director whose wife had left him and he was a complete and utter workaholic and like literally... I mean, I think when I worked for him, I've, I slept on a conference room floor one night, you know, or just go back at four in the morning to like change and take a shower and make pretend, you know, pretend that you, you got some sleep and then come back. And I remember like looking at that and when his relationship fell apart, I think she took all the furniture and he was like living in an empty apartment in Manhattan, like on an air mattress basically, or like a mattress on a floor. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I don't think I want that life. <laughs> so in this milieu, how do you define success for yourself? You know, so I had my grant that I had to submit and I submitted on Friday. Um, so that was a success that I got that stupid thing done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it looks pretty good. And I think they'll, uh, you know, not put it in low priority. <laughs> Just, nice. I like you're like just, it won't be rejected. Maybe <laughs> it, it may still get rejected, but it will at least get reviewed, right? There's a certain like bar where they will not review it because it's so bad. Got it. So I think I'm over that bar. So you're in contention. I'm in contention. The pot of money is limited, and there's you know all sorts of factors that go into what gets funded. I I think I have a shot and at least to get reviewed and feedback to improve it next year if I need to resubmit. Um, So that, that was a success and everybody was like, yay, Teresa, you got your grant and you're amazing. And the process by which I executed getting that thing done was horrible. I see that it was like, okay, good. You got that thing done. It's going to get reviewed. Don't ever do that again like that, Teresa. Right. So. Cause it sounds painful. (laughs) It, Painful. I spent Saturday and Sunday of two weekends ago, like literally my butt hurt from sitting. (laughs) Monday, I was like, I I physically damaged my body by working on this grant. My butt hurts. (laughs) And, um, And on Monday, I was like brain dead. I couldn't think. I was useless. I might as well have just not come into work. I had luckily this very kind of low bandwidth, very long meeting that I had to go to that afternoon. And um, if not for that, I would have done nothing productive the whole day. So, yeah, so the process sucked. And, you know, I'm not happy with that. So I think I feel better about the things that I achieve when I achieve them in a way that feels healthy and good and like a model that I would like other people to see. Um, what would you like to re-engineer in that process next time you face a grant? I knew I needed to block time, but I wasn't blocking it sufficiently and in a disciplined way. Like I really was like letting people distract me and doing email and like letting other things that had popped up take priority when I should have been like, just work on your grant. 
So. Well, a lot of those things I imagine, and I, I, I certainly have projects in my world that kind of fit outside of the three spheres of my work that I'm like, well, this is a good opportunity. And, and, you know, maybe it's a speaking event or maybe it's being on someone else's podcast. And those things always feel like, I always consider them like sort of extracurriculars. And in the past year or so, I've really been trying to look at those things like that is work. That is also work. So you, it's not the thing that you want to start doing at 5 p.m. That was always my, that's always my, oh, I'll do that thing that's not like a normal business process or normal client work. I'll, I'll you know, I'll do that after I get my, all my other work done. And then like the days creep up or it creeps into the weekend. And then I feel like, oh, no, um, I'm starting to overwork again. But those like one-off things t- can really throw you sometimes. Yeah. And, and I'm just useless in the evening. <laughs> so you know your limits. <laughs> I just can't do anything that requires any sort of real processing power in, you know, after dinner. And so to try and have this model of like, well, I'll work on my grant every night for even half an hour. It, it just didn't work. I just didn't do it. And even if I did like that half an hour was just like a lot of wheel spinning. Um, so which sounds like it sounds like evening is a perfect time to catch up on the email for the day. <laughs> like the the more like mindless sort of work that we have to do. Yeah. And if the any of the emails require any thought, I don't deal with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Till the morning when I actually and and I'm up early enough that I can normally respond prior to anybody coming in so that it's almost the same as if I did it at like seven o'clock at night. Or eight o'clock. Got right? it. They're, so you, you beat their to the punch. <laughs> they won't know. They know when I wrote it, um, but it doesn't matter. It's it's more or less getting done in a timely fashion. It's better because I slept. I think knowing those things are so important, right? Like knowing, okay, evenings don't work for me. Like I know in my own life, like Thursday evenings are probably like my lowest energy point of the week. It's like I haven't got that like uptick that it's Friday or that it's almost the weekend or, you know, a lot of times I'm recording podcasts on Friday or I'm, I'm doing non-client facing work. So I'm feeling like, all right, I'm, I'm ending the week sort of together. And then it's on to play things. I think it's interesting, like the, the women that I talk to that are really achieving things really have that innate sense of what their energy levels are and whether that be in the cycle of a time of day or the cycle of the week or even the cycle of the month. Was that something you were always really aware of or is that something you had to learn? It's been a really long time since I've not been a morning person. Even in college, I always took the eight o'clock classes. You were that person. (laughs) I was that person. I took my classes pretty much like eight to 11 and then was in the lab the rest of the time. Um, kind of always go to bed early, get up early person. So yeah, I've, it's been a really long time since I've ever functioned on anything different than that. Even when I was in high school, I can remember getting up, going to bed and then getting up super early to like put in that last hour of studying or getting something done at like crazy early times, but still like recognizing that at a certain time of night, like this is counterproductive. 
I'm neither getting sleep nor getting anything done. <laughs> so <laughs> go to bed. <laughs> what do your mornings look like? Like, how do you set yourself up for the day? Because one thing I know about you that listeners may not know about you yet is you're also a competitive triathlete. So I'm guessing that you probably have some hardcore scheduling tactics that we could learn from. I'm uh, totally reliant on Google Calendar. Um, <laughs> and it's always sort of a, a interesting thing for students or other faculty to see my calendar because it's just a sight to see because <laughs> got all of these things scheduled, including um, all my workouts, my time to write my, all my meetings. Like I plan out the whole day more or less. And so it looks like I have, you know, wall to wall activities, which is not really true. Like when, the, when a student comes in and needs to schedule time with me and I pull up my calendar it's this uh, moment where I hate to say that I do this on purpose because I don't totally do it for intimidating students, forcing them to reckon with that my time is valuable. Um, but it does have that impact on them. <laughs> <laughs> it's the byproduct. And they're, the byproduct is, is that they recognize that I'm busy which I am. Um, I just put everything on Google Calendar. All my workouts are scheduled. I always try to have those scheduled a week or two ahead of everything else so that they are not being pushed completely out by the busyness of my job, but that my job is somehow working around them a little bit. Not a lot, but a little, just to sort of give them some priority. That's it. And I will say that my husband and I have been using Google Calendar since it was in beta. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. And literally, like, we probably wouldn't be married. <laughs> I don't know. Probably not. It's not that bad. But we were literally having these moments of coming home and saying, I have to go on a trip, date X, Y, and Z. And he was like, well, I have to go on a trip, date X, Y, and Z. And Google Calendar allowed us to, like, instantaneously communicate that such that, you know, sort of who get, whoever gets there first. <laughs> gets the <laughs> and it's not always like that, but it was, there was enough of that happening of us sort of scheduling things or having to, you know, commitments, especially once we had kids that were at, at the same times that Google calendar just dealt with that beautifully. If you didn't put it on the calendar, then, oh, well, you know, I scheduled this thing. I do rely on that to kind of just help me get through the day of telling me where to go and, and what to do. Now that I'm in this administrative role, it's really been an adjustment to have other people adding stuff to my calendar. Oh. I didn't have before. How did you let go? <laughs> I, I had a lot of anxiety about that. I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and I could not find the Google search terms that pulled up anything useful from my perspective on how to deal with this. Um, whenever I searched, it always brought up administrative assistance view of managing another person's calendar, not the person's calendar who was being managed. <laughs> so, um, Which is unbelievable because the amount of 
type A overachieving, planning, overscheduled women that I come in contact with on the regular. Like you would think there'd be a support group for us at this point. I could not find the combination of search terms that would pull up that information. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, and your research skills are probably far more honed than mine at this point in life. Yeah, I was. I tried a couple times, and I talked. (laughs) to people too like how do you manage this like how does it work for you and you know their answers were never satisfactory because they were willing to completely surrender their day from eight o'clock to six o'clock to Vassar College and I'm not willing to do that I surrender a lot of my time here but I'm not like willing to be scheduled eight to six block to block right like I can't do that so, you know, I spoke with the administrative assistants who put stuff on my calendar and we talked about how they don't want to be around Teresa if she doesn't go running <laughs> um, and that they could move my runs within the day, but they could not like subdivide them. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can't do half a run, have a conversation and then finish your run. Um, you can move it half an hour, you know, like move it within the day, but you can't delete it or um, interrupt it. Uh, And so it's worked out. And are there any other rules that you found have been really helping you with this? Because I know it's something that I hear a lot of, like either women going through this kind of transition or being on the other side of it, but then still being kind of attached to the process. Yeah. So I also block off times that I label GTD for getting things done. I wasn't quite bold enough to write GSD. (laughs) Oh, come on, Teresa. (laughs) You know, this is my new job. You know, my my real boss actually sees my calendar, you know, and it's like, (laughs) to manage that a little bit. Um, So I think I look ahead on my calendar and I make sure to block off times to get things done that I need to do both personally and work-related. Is that something you do weekly, monthly, quarterly, all of the above? Definitely weekly to sit down and review it both because I need to know sort of what's coming up both for me personally with work, but also with my kids and my husband, what's going on, make sure that he knows the nights I'm not going to be home because I have work things or what he's responsible for with regard to taking somebody somewhere or something like that. Like just the logistics of life. I have to review it every week at least. And then every morning I get up and look at it to know who I'm going to meet with, throughout the day, like sort of loaded into my brain because especially with people putting stuff on my calendar, like that could happen and I wouldn't be notified. Oh, until you actually like look at your calendar the next day. Uh, And so knowing who I'm going to meet with helps me also pick out my clothes for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Having the rhythm of the day sort of loaded into my brain first thing in the morning to get going. But I almost always start my day with exercise, almost almost always. So is that a really hardcore workout or is that just kind of get the body moving, get the brain going, getting things heated up for the day? Well, it depends. Usually three mornings a week I swim 
and the other two mornings I'm either running or biking and, you know, whether it's super intense or just kind of recovery, easy stuff just depends on what's on the schedule. But I always feel like if I start the day doing that, I'm a better person. The perfect example of that was after the election. That day after the election, there were many, many students on this campus that were really, really um, shattered. Very, yeah, shattered. Thank you. That's the perfect word. I mean, I had a, a student who was working in my lab whose parents are undocumented immigrants. Ugh. Right? So he's in my office crying, and I'm crying, like, He's saying to me, what's going to happen? Will he really do those things that he said? And, you know, I have no answers. And I feel like crying, too. And equally um, as powerless in probably right. some other yeah. way. <laughs> right. And so, let's see, Tuesday was the election. This is Wednesday morning. I did not do anything because we were up all night. And actually, I, I was up with my daughter, who was hysterically sobbing my 16 year old who had to sleep in the bed with us practically because she was so upset um so wednesday morning i didn't exercise but i come in and this student body is just like as you said shattered and then the next morning would have been a day for the pool and i'm laying in bed the alarm goes off and i'm just i'm just like Teresa, oh you're too tired just stay in bed and then like this this voice or this like power said, no, go to the pool. And it was just this, this knowing of get up and go to the pool. And as I was driving there, what I realized and was thankful for from that, whatever, wherever it came from (laughs) was this understanding that in order to be present and who I needed to be for, the people here at Vassar, I needed to go to the pool. I needed to go and swim and take care of myself and like feel some power coursing through my body so that when I was here on campus, I could be present for the people who needed me, which was not just the students, but also faculty who were you know fit to be tied as well. And many who were dealing with students, they didn't have a lot of experience talking to students about these things. Like, Teresa, what do you think I should say? How, do you, how should I handle this? So I just needed to go and do that so that I could be who I needed to be. You know, that experience and, and many others like that that make me have no qualms about taking an hour in the middle of the day to do my run because I'm a better person. I'm a better faculty member. I'm a better administrator. I'm a better person for Vassar if I do my workouts. So what I'm hearing is, is not only is it all of the physical fitness benefits that we that we know to be true about exercise and the emotional benefits, but for you, as what I'm guessing is a pretty kinesthetic learner, or at least a really kinesthetic person, it's almost like your moving form of meditation. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, there's been days where I have run out onto the Vassar farm. We have a really amazing resource that's, I don't even know, it's, uh, I think it's a hundred acres or, or more, um, this farm that's right adjacent to campus. And I've run out there and just stood in the middle of this space 
and just stopped. <laughs> Sometimes I, I felt like I could scream, like, Ugh, you know, but just like stand there and like look around and let it out. Whatever it is that's happened that day is, you know, a student that's in crisis or uh, a faculty member that's just like, <laughs> um, or just whatever. And I've gone out, you know, I've gone and done that stuff and then I can come back and deal with it in a, in a way that's productive and constructive and more true to who I want to be rather than the crazy lunatic person that I could be if <laughs> I didn't do that. Right. Yeah. So one of the questions I have for you, Teresa, cause I love working in the interstitial space. And one of the things that I hear from women is they know they will feel better if they take time to just decompress like that, you know, and when I say that for you, it's kind of just taking a jog out into that field and kind of being in nature and getting back into your own body and like having a place to just decompress. It might look different for other women, but like I always think of like exercise and playful activities as well. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's really important to do it. And I hear from women all the time. I know I should do that. And then they let like 900 things eat up that time. What helps you in that moment? Like when you feel that building pressure, when you feel like I'm starting to not be the best Teresa for anyone right now, what helps you go from kind of just staying in that rut, you know, or kind of staying face down in whatever activity is sort of sucking your energy right there and getting up and like, putting on the sneakers or, you know, maybe even just getting up and like walking out and going for a walk. Maybe it's not even as involved in activity, but what helps you make that switch? There's a couple things. One is I have a coach who I log all this, all my workouts and he looks at them. So there's a little <laughs> bit of accountability of like, he would hate that I might be implying that he would be judging me if I skipped a workout and I know he wouldn't. And so Justin, I know that you won't judge me. <laughs> workout. And I'm laughing um, because I know that this is what people think about me too. That like Kara is going to be mean mommy if I report I didn't do my homework. <laughs> right. But there is that sort of accountability of like, I told him that I wanted to do this and he's his job in some ways to hold me accountable to that. So there's that commitment, right? Yes. And that, that discipline that I just do what I do. Because so building in that external accountability a little bit. sometimes. The other thing that I've realized is that if I skip my swim or my run or whatever, that hour that I spend working instead is not all of a sudden going to be the difference between frazzled and behind or not. So... I'm sacrificing this thing that I know is a good and positive thing for me on so many levels for a benefit that's really like minimal. Like if when I teach, like maybe that hour might mean I get my grading done and I'll be able to hand stuff back to students. Okay, that might be worth it. But most of the other stuff that I'm trying to get accomplished, that hour is not going to all of a sudden mean, boom, it's done. 
And so I'm not really going to be that much less stressed if I skip my run. And instead, I'm going to have skip my run and still be more or less the same kind of amount of stuff that I'm behind on or that I have to do. And so I'm just not going to skip it. I'm just going to prioritize that this is good for me. I want to get it done. I, I have goals that are surrounding my, um, my fitness that are important to me. And they're as important to me as my work goals. So I do them. Yeah, so sometimes I think it's just uh, it's just about just doing it, right? Like, and and also like, I don't always love to go out and do my run, and I don't always end it feeling super great. And so this idea that like the people who keep up a fitness program or whatever somehow are getting some sort of magical benefit or feel magically more wonderful than people who who don't. No, sometimes I feel horrible. <laughs> like it's hard. What he has me do is hard and I don't want to do it, but I, but I do it anyway. And in the end, like it's an accomplishment. And there are some days where sometimes like my swim or, or my bike may be the only real thing that I feel like I've accomplished in the day. And in my office, I have this little uh, rack my sister got me that says she believes she could. So she did. And I have all my medals from finishing races hanging on it and my race bibs are all there and I want people to know that this is a part of my life and that I care about it and you know that means that I have to put my time towards it and they have to see me running around in spandex on campus (laughs) I love it I love it there's so many good things in what you just said I mean you know even if we're looking at just the the piece about the workouts like that it how you were describing them and your reaction to them some days reminds me of just my own meditation practice like they have to happen like the incremental amount of whatever other thing would get done by skipping that 20 minutes or skipping those 60 minutes is not worth like the benefit but that doesn't always mean that that every time you work out or I work out or I meditate that it is a pleasure cruise like you know Last week, I found myself fumbling one morning, just not wanting to meditate, which is usually a sign that I need 30 minutes instead of 20 minutes that day. And I finally just set a timer and was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I don't know, I guess probably, I don't know, 28 and a half minutes of that was like my brain just bouncing around in all different directions. And it was only in the last minute and a half when the voice kind of came on the guided meditation and said, you know, hey, now let your brain do whatever it wants. That was the only time like my brain complied that day. And so that it's, you know, we do these things because we recognize like the implicit, like the cost of me not doing this to myself, to how I feel, to how I interact with everyone else, to what kind of creativity or problem solving I'm going to bring to my work. I mean, blah, 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 blah. That list goes on and on and on, probably to infinity. But it's important that we we do those things, even the days they're messy and feel unproductive and aren't quite giving us the kick that we need. And I, I think you sharing that is really valuable. because, And it's, it's something that I worry about because I think I talk a lot about in the work that I do 
about moving women from where they are to a place where they feel like they're living a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. But that doesn't mean it's 100% joy and you are working, at, you know, fully in rapture on 100% of the things that you do in a day. But, like, moving closer to having, like, real pleasure and, and living a really intentional, meaningful life. And I, I think there's dangerous territory there sometimes. And I, I, I see gurus and, like, all these people talking about that, like, joy, 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 happiness, like, all of this positive psychology stuff out there. But, like, can start to tip and be unrealistic. So I personally think what you shared is incredibly helpful and incredibly important for people to be hearing. And I, I feel like this is a, a kind of natural place to segue to some other questions. I mean, they speak less to students and these are more to women, but I, I, I think the essence of what we're talking about here may come through these questions as well. But I always like to give people a chance to kind of have some context before I dive into the questions. And the first one I want to ask you is, how would you define being a modern woman? I think a modern woman is in a, a state of agitation, not content. And I don't mean that in the negative, like it, we're angry, or, but that we're just not, we're no longer complacent. We're, we're not just sitting around. We're agitated with the world, the way it's constructed, and we're impatient for it to change. That I think is how I feel and how I, I think my daughters feel. And and a lot of the women that I, I work with and we're kind of done dealing with this stuff that we've been dealing with. And we're not going to just be content anymore to kind of roll our eyes and shrug it off and ha ha ha. the sort of systematic inequities and just bullshit that women have to deal with. Yes. Yes. And I, it's funny you mentioned this. I just listened to a podcast from Todd Henry yesterday when I was out for a walk at lunch and he used the expression. It was a completely different topic, but I think it's, it's salient. He used this expression he was asking the question and it was around people like finding their uniqueness and discovering like, you know, what they're meant to be doing. And his question was, what makes you compassionately angry, right? Like what are the problems in the world that you're, that you you're wanting to solve? And so the whole time you were talking, like in my head, it was just flashing like compassionate anger, compassionate anger. I don't think we need to be approaching the world all angry but just with like no not no (laughs) no that's not gonna fly anymore let's try again yeah yeah it's a matter of factness of just no longer no no more (laughs) yeah this this shit doesn't fly (laughs) no more so now hearing that's kind of the place that you're you're thinking about these questions from plus your experience what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? I think I would like them to be more aware and critical of the construction of our world that is unequal, not just for women, but for um, minorities, 
people of all different identities, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, racial, ethnic identities, all of those ways in which the world is constructed such that people with these various identities are, are held back systematically. It, it does apply to women, but I think we have the opportunity to not just move the needle for women, but for like for all these different groups. But we have to really open our eyes and see it both in the world around us and within ourselves, how we may be holding some bias that we didn't realize or that we are um, marginalizing people through the way we talk or act. Yeah, just being agitated about that too. Yeah, I think it's important. And I I know social justice is not your field of expertise, but it, it definitely sounds like you've been doing some work, you know, definitely since the election and probably long before. Being at Vassar, I think in order to be successful here and to really be fully engaged, you have to start to see those things and, and grapple with them and see where I need to improve and learn. But no, I'm not a scholar of social justice and I never will be. And I see my role as being like the kind of normal person who doesn't study those things who needs to deal with them model for everybody to practice on or to deal with (laughs) because I put my foot in my mouth. Sometimes we need to have a world in which, you know, we're trying to be more just and and equitable and inclusive, but we're not always going to get it right the first time, right? We're products of our environment and, you know, I'm not there yet. And so I'm going to say things that are off and I just need you to tell me and forgive me and then we can move forward. And I guess because I know this topic is so nebulous and I know like, again, as a white woman, there's a lot of stuff I'm learning and I, I feel like the lessons are coming faster and more furious in the last couple of years, but certainly you know, something, even since I grew up in a small town that I think the diversity was you were French Catholic or Irish Catholic. And then there were a lot of cows like that was, you know, for the most part, the diversity, you know, maybe 1% of the town was not white and Catholic. (laughs) It felt like some days. Um, And then going to a large institution like UMass, you know, it was so eye opening and world changing and paradigm shifting. So I understand like what a big topic it is. If you had one practice or habit or activity that has really been helping you on on this front, what would it be? So Vassar has opportunities for, you know, faculty and administrative development that have surrounded these things and those have really been profoundly impactful for me in terms of learning how to talk about difficult things like race and all these uh, identity, the intersectionality of all these identities. So I do those things whenever they come up. Like if you, if you will let me in, I will come. Um, Because I think these are things that are not one and done. Like you can't go to a diversity training and then like, Oh, now you, and diversity and you will now be an inclusive person who will not be microaggressive towards anyone like that's just not good like it takes like multiple touches over and over again I do read a little bit but not not too much I've read a couple of really good books one was Claude Steele's 
uh, book on stereotype threat called Whistling Vivaldi. That was really impactful. The other thing is um, just being willing to sit at the table, you know, and be willing to have those conversations with people who know more, who are experiencing these things, and mostly just sit and listen and not talk. Just listen to their experiences and and what they're saying about the things that they're living and, and breathing in this world and to not dismiss it. That, you know, when I hear students talk about that they feel uh, that they don't belong here at Vassar, I, I, I'm like, of course you belong. You were admitted and like, here you are and you're doing, you know, you're in my class and of course you belong here. And of course you belong taking a chemistry class and of course you belong. But then the reality is, is that they don't feel that they belong. And no matter whether I think they should or not is irrelevant. <laughs> yep. Um, they just don't. And, and so now what is that? That's now my responsibility to rectify. And so being willing to sit in the room and hear that and think about it and not dismiss it. And then, you know, taking opportunities to learn how to mediate change in those regards, whether it's through how you teach or how you run a meeting or how you just speak. Um, I've, I've been willing to do, I, when I go to conferences, I go to those sessions that deal with that, those topics. And, and so I just take advantage of it as much as I can. Just kind of insisting that I be part of those conversations and that like my experience of these topics is relevant to students. They're going to go out into the world outside of Vassar College and they're going to experience people who are not like their professor in their race studies class or their gender, their women's studies class, right? They're going to yep. experience very conservative Dutchess County <laughs> And so I'm a good person to interact with because I'm not very conservative Dutchess County, but I'm also not that like I'm a good intermediary of like, let's talk about this in a way that, you know, you can practice on me. I'm not, you know, well-versed in that scholarship. I'm never going to be to the extent that people who study it for a living are, but that's okay. I still need to be part of the conversation. So cool. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think it's, you know, we can talk about it really ethereally, but then like, what does that look like in the actions that you're taking? And I think there were so many ideas for inspiration or or ways for people to think about it that are like, how do I, what do I do here on the sidelines? How do I get into the game? So thank you for taking that little diversion with me. And then another question I always like to ask from a, a slightly different perspective is what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? My answer to this is how things look, you know, how their houses look, how their hair looks, how their makeup looks, how their clothes look, all the optics. I feel like I, I mentioned earlier how I get up in the morning, I look at my calendar to decide what I'm going to wear. I think that's a tax on women's time and psyche that men don't pay. They don't pay the like, oh, should today I wear khaki colored pants or black pants or, you know, this tie or that tie. It's just, the, it's not something they like spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time thinking about. Whereas I like, I have to decide do I need to dress up, like wear a dress or, or pantsuit because of, 
you know, how, who I'm going to be meeting with or how they're all going to be comporting themselves. Or I can, you know, go more faculty dress, what I call teacher clothes. (laughs) Or could you just go full spandex, right? Or full like yoga pants, right? Exactly. (laughs) And also just, you know, I was talking to my husband the other day, when people come to our house and they look around and they see like how it's decorated, they don't think, oh, he did such a great job decorating the house, right? It's all, it's, it's a, a thing that's assigned to women to do. And we're kind of given this, this sort of default to having to look a certain way, having things around us be constructed in a certain way. And I just, I feel like it's just too much. And it's, I just can't deal with it. <laughs> and I wish that I, I have a friend who, um, she would come back from conferences and her feet would be bloody. Like she would have band-aids all over her feet because she was wearing <laughs> these shoes. And I'm just like, what is the matter with you? Oh, well, you know, I have to. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I just like that sort of stuff just astonishes me. I am not a high heel wearer. And I honestly do not see how anybody wears them. But I, you know, <laughs> more power to them. I am not a nice person to be around if my feet hurt. And <laughs> so there's just no way. But like, just like all of that and you know makeup and i'm i'm a simpleton when it comes to that stuff i wear all of zero makeup most every day of my life i've just decided i'm bad at it i never could figure out how to do it in a way that was worth the time or like felt i also like could always feel it on my face and so whatever judge me if you want world i don't care (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think we would be feel better and like have more bandwidth to do much more amazing things if if we could turn that down a little bit. Absolutely. And I'm I'm smiling as you're talking. This is something I have been trying to dismantle for years cuz I I hated being forced to wear a suit when I started work after college. And when I quit PwC, I think I vowed that I would never wear a button-up shirt with a collar in my life again. And recently I bought a flannel shirt now that I'm living in the Catskills because as one is wont to do. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the first collared shirt I've bought in a long time. But also I've been really slowly but surely over the years. And I, you know, I haven't gone full minimal by any stretch. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not big into shopping. It's just not how I want to like spend my brain space. So I don't know, about five years ago, four years ago, I met someone who could make patterns and I had this one skirt that I liked how it fit and I mailed it to her and she, I don't know if she even took it apart or what she did, but she made a pattern of that skirt and then I just picked out fabric and I've narrowed down my color palette that I buy clothes in to just, what is it? Red, purple, Red, purple, hot pink, black, and gray. And those are my colors. Like everything I own or have been buying going forward are those colors. And then these skirts, it's like they're lined so I can wear them in the summer with just shoes. I can wear them, you know, in the winter. But you will always see me if you see me out like at any sort of function where I'm not wearing jeans, basically. I am wearing usually one of these skirts and some 
black top, typically, is how it rolls for me. And it's just eliminated so much choosing. And I, you know, I think there's still like, I I do hear some of those voices sometimes that people are probably like, she wears the same clothes all the time. And it's like, no, I actually have five of the same black (laughs) t-shirt or two of the same sweaters. (laughs) Yeah. I started a few years ago collecting dresses, like adding dresses to my wardrobe because I just did not want to be wearing the same clothes as my male colleagues, like tan pants and a button-down shirt. I just, (laughs) you know, I'm a woman, hear me roar, whatever, any sort of stuff, like, I don't want to dress like a man. And then somebody said to me, oh, well, that's very old-fashioned of you. (laughs) This is like, (laughs) you can't win. (laughs) Like, this idea that, like, I wear a dress, and that's, like, going back to the time where women weren't allowed to wear pants. And I'm just like, oh, God, like, I can't win. But, um... Yeah, like I just don't want to, I want to be an inspiring woman. So I'm conscious of like that how I dress also, you know, reinforces that somehow, which is why also there's pictures of my kids in my office and all that stuff, because it's all part of who I am. I want that. I'm not one of those women that doesn't talk about their family or about their kids or those sorts of things, which unfortunately, some women feel like they can't actually acknowledge that they have families in their work life. You know, I'm a woman and that's pretty amazing. And it's like better than being a man in my opinion. (laughs) Um, You know, we get to do things that men have, have no idea how amazing they are to do. You know, there's bad things too, but I don't know. So the whole clothing thing is, is the thing I'm still working on. I think I'm, I'm really close to, if I had to dress up, a little bit more professional every day, I would probably use one of those services where they send you clothes. Yep. Because I just, I don't want to sh- go and shop and angst about this. I just want somebody else to do it for me and just have that be like kind of what you're talking about, like that kind of uniform of similar style things, but also, I don't know. I'm, I'm cognizant of, I don't want to be wearing the, you know, khakis and button down. Yep. So, yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And I guess we've, we've covered so many different topics in our conversation today. I guess I want to give you a chance to take the mic. What do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know? Choose you, which can mean that, you know, do your meditation, go for your jog, Go to the pool. Choose you. Because, I don't know, no one else is going <laughs> to. <laughs> We're just better when we when we put ourselves first a little bit sometimes. I think we are better and more present for our families, for our spouses, for our work. I mean, I've experienced that. My daughters have said to me, I'm glad that you have things that are outside of just us. Like, you have a job and you have things that you aspire to besides just only their needs. So I think we need to just be supporting each other and choosing things that, that are important to us and that, that are meaningful to us personally, instead of always thinking about the needs of others around us and that other can be our job too. And that's impressive that you got that from a 16 year old daughter. Cause there, 
they're not usually congratulating moms on anything, right? My kids are really amazing. They're Aww. They have an me. amazing mom, it sounds uh, like. <laughs> and Teresa, I'm going to make sure that everyone has links to find your work and find you on social and links to a lot of the references or resources we mentioned throughout the show. But what's your preferred way for women who are interested in learning more about you to to connect with you and your work? I think definitely email is the way to connect with me. Um, there's a, a link through the Vassar Index directory where you can send an email directly to me and then it doesn't risk going into spam or anything like that. Um, but I, I do have like a Twitter, but mostly just to follow we rate dogs. <laughs> so, I mean, you can go look at my Twitter feed. It's mostly cute dogs. <laughs> Some days we need that when, when the compassionate anger towards current circumstances in the world builds, sometimes we just need cute dogs for me, it's for me. It's baby otter videos. I could oh. I could lose days I'd sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, know. I just look at the cute dogs. <laughs> you triathlon sites, and so there's. I don't tweet very much. Um, so definitely email or through my webpage. That's on um, on the Vassar site. Awesome. Like I said, I'll make sure everyone has those links. But Teresa, thank you so much for sharing your perspective and sharing what you do and really answering some vulnerable and and personal questions about how you're getting it all done. Because it it looks so different for all of us. And I really appreciate your your different perspective. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. It's great. i I had no idea what to expect. It was super fun. Hey, everyone. It's Kara. I'm back for a couple final announcements before you skedaddle onto your day. First, I want to say thank you for listening. It's your downloads, it's your sharing these episodes, it's your feedback about the show that keeps me going and helps make this show possible and for me to stay excited and and psyched to do this. So thank you. Thank you for that support. It feels great. And I always want to remind you that you can find links to all of the resources that we mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. And that's L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. I wanted to remind you one more time, if you've been feeling like it's time to get your shit together this year and you want to do it differently, please take me up on that phone call. Literally go to levitalcoresalon.com and click contact and You can drop me a note and it'll make its way right to my inbox and we can set up a time to talk. So do not lollygag if this is important to you. Also, this show would not be possible without the help of Craig Snyder, who makes my guests and I sound like a dream and does his Pro Tools magic and lets me brainstorm and is just a huge supporter of me and this show. 
And I want to thank Darlene Victoria for all of her help on the production side and with all the tedious stuff that I am not very good at that she is amazing at. And I also want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for letting me use this kick-ass theme song. I gotta run, and so do you. But don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let the bullshit or burnout slow you down. Mm